Welcome to The Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode number 113, JEDP, The Mount Ebaldificio, and C.S. Lewis, Part 6. Quote, But indeed, the business of the universe is to make such a fool of you that you will know yourself for one, and so begin to be wise. George MacDonald, from his novel Lilith. When the Mount Ebal de Fixio was announced, I warned Christians to be cautious and not to make fools of themselves in relation to it, that we should allow the professional process to take its course, and the critics to make their best cases, and thus that we should be careful not to claim too much in relation to it. It was, and is, good advice. If the scholarly process is not short-circuited and the imbalanced critics do not win the day, this find, like the Mount Ebal altar discovered by Adam Zertal in the 1980s, evoking a similar critical meltdown, will speak for itself, even if it takes a generation or so to accomplish it. This is why I adopted the refrain, Let the Lead Speak. We turn our attention now to the broader context of this archaeological find, not only within modern theology and biblical criticism, but within the very social fabric that constrains our thinking and even our perception of the world. How might this little lead tablet speak to us about truth and reality, about God? Indeed, can it speak if, like Robert Cargill, we shut our eyes and stop our ears to its very presence, and with all our authority and mental acuity demand that others do the same. We will close this series, then, through the lens of C.S. Lewis's essay, Modern Theology and Biblical Criticism, in the context of our contemporary academic, intellectual, socio-cultural zeitgeist. What did you expect? I am a philosophy professor, after all. Lewis had an important and unique temporal perspective. He was born in the 19th century, 1898, and grew up in the early 20th. Although the intellectual origins of the higher criticism and the JEDP theory can be traced much farther back, it truly came into its own only in the mid to late 19th century. It has only grown in influence since then, however, due to the increasing secularization of Western thought. Lewis grew up in the world, and, more importantly, in the academic culture of England, when these ideas began to take over from their origins on the continent, and particularly in Germany. This essay comes from late in his life, 1959 to be exact. He would die four and a half years later at the age of 64, on the same day as President John F. Kennedy and Aldous Huxley, author of Brave New World, three years before I was born. It is fascinating to me, mostly because it mirrors my own response in relation to this style, I would like to consider it a fad, as Lewis himself hoped it would be, of critical investigation. That Lewis had so little knowledge about its specifics. 
Like me, he was interested in everything, and his encyclopedic interests led to extremes of both depth and breadth of knowledge in whatever caught his interest. In a word, Lewis never studied the higher critics, never read their works at any great length. He begins this talk, this essay, in a sense apologizing to his audience for his ignorance of that about which he is to speak. Quote, the undermining of the old orthodoxy has been mainly the work of divines, that is, theologians, engaged in New Testament criticism. The authority of experts in that discipline is the authority in deference to whom we are asked to give up a huge mass of beliefs shared in common by the early church, the fathers, the Middle Ages, the reformers, and even the 19th century. It is important to note that Lewis correctly here points out that the appeal on which the higher criticism and its results rests is an appeal to authority. As a professor of philosophy, I also quite frequently teach both logic and critical thinking. The appeal to authority is listed as a fallacy in nearly every canon of informal logic. But, as I always tell my students, not all appeals to authority are fallacious, a point that Lewis himself makes on many occasions. At least part of the evidence for Christian belief comes from what we Christians consider legitimate appeals to authority. What matters in differentiating the legitimate appeal to authority from the fallacious is the authority being appealed to. Lewis continues, I want to explain what it is that makes me skeptical about this authority. Ignorantly skeptical, as you will all too easily see. But the skepticism is the father of the ignorance. It is hard to persevere in a close study when you can work up no prima facie confidence in your teachers. I would suggest to you that Lewis was ignorant of the higher critics and their work because they rang hollow to him each time he tried to study them. He could muster no enthusiasm, feel no intellectual stimulation in their writings. I am the same. You might justifiably consider it a form of confirmation bias, of course, but I think it is more complex than that. Lewis neither avoided nor failed to engage ideas with which he personally disagreed. As an atheist, he fell in love with G.K. Chesterton, despite its being nearly the opposite of his own worldview at the time. He read Chesterton's Everlasting Man with delight, despite not agreeing with a word of it. Many more examples could be given. In my own life, I devour materials that disagree with my perspective when they are well-written and engaging. When everyone in graduate school was reading Heidegger as the philosopher, I tried numerous times, but my interest never caught fire. By contrast, a few paragraphs of Jean-Paul Sartre, and I was hooked, even though I was the only one that found him worth reading. Hegel, as most listeners know, is my nemesis, yet I am thoroughly engaged by his works as difficult and off-putting as they are. I want to suggest to you 
that the remainder of this essay is Lewis's attempt to explain, both to himself and to us, that spontaneous lack of intellectual engagement engendered by the higher critical approach to the scriptures. Perhaps most of you had a favorite teacher in your academic journey. Whatever that teacher taught came alive for you. And if you were like me, you would take every class that teacher taught, no matter what it was, even if it was a topic that you thought boring. And, invariably, boredom would blossom into excitement. It is precisely this sense that is utterly absent from the higher critical authority. I admit that it is a subjective response that keeps us ignorant of what they have to say. But in what follows, Lewis anchors that initially subjective response in objective reasoning. Quote, First, then, whatever these men may be as biblical critics, I distrust them as critics. They seem to me to lack literary judgment, to be imperceptive about the very quality of the texts they are reading. These men ask me to believe they can read between the lines of the old texts. The evidence is their obvious inability to read the lines themselves. They claim to see fern seed and can't see an elephant ten yards away in broad daylight. Early in this series, I referenced the psychologist and neuroscientist, Dr. Ian McGilchrist, famous for his 2009 book, The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World, which Jenny and I are currently reading together. McGilchrist argues that it is predominantly what we here at the Christian Atheist have called hyper-rationality that is dominant in the left hemisphere's worldview. The left brain composes its world from parts, creating a rationalized map of reality, but fails to see the living whole, which is the function of the right hemisphere's worldview. I cannot help linking Lewis's critique here of the higher critics as critics to a predominantly left-brained thinking process. They view the literary text as a collection of parts, but fail to see the dynamic and living literary qualities that make a text truly literary. Using Jesus' words, they are blind guides who strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. They consistently, to use another hackneyed phrase, are unable to see the forest for the trees. Lewis continues, It sounds a strange charge to bring against men who have been steeped in those books all their lives. But that might be just the trouble. A man who has spent his youth and manhood in the minute study of New Testament texts and of other people's studies of them, whose literary experiences of those texts lacks any standard of comparison, such as can only grow from a wide and deep and genial experience of literature in general, is, I should think, very likely to miss the obvious things about them. What Lewis is pointing to here 
is a phenomenon with which I am all too familiar in academic circles. It has long been one of my own critiques of academia as it is currently constituted. When I was in graduate school, studying a philosopher meant, in small part, reading that philosopher's works, but to a much greater extent, engaging with what was called the secondary literature. That is, what other philosophers have written about those primary texts. From my earliest experience with philosophy, I did not follow this expectation, and gratefully neither did my graduate advisor, who advocated a serious engagement with primary texts in all his own philosophical work. Thus, for me, doing philosophy meant reading Kant's Critique of Pure Reason, Sartre's Being and Nothingness, Hegel's Encyclopedia of the Philosophical Sciences, Marx's Capital, and Husserl's Ideas, etc. It did not mean immersing myself in what other philosophers thought about these texts. Yet this is what academic specialization has come to mean. The secondary wranglings of an elite and highly specialized community of scholars mucking about in the minute speculations of what other scholars are thinking and publishing concerning a primary text or philosopher. This procedure lends itself to a highly artificial and increasingly disconnected, fragmented, analytical view that is ever more highly rationalized, but dead, lacking the spirit that animated the living philosopher, or the independent text. We meet again here, then, the problem of the expert we discussed in episode number 107. A group of scholars becomes an isolated ivory tower, concentrating all their, usually quite impressive, energies and intelligence on a very narrow concern or theoretical problem, thus seeking to rationally solve and articulate a given rational picture, a paradigm. The problem is that they are so narrowly concentrated that they fail to understand the broader contexts and living realities that give life to their discipline's concerns. Their narrow concern and deep-dive rationalization makes them insensitive to reality outside their area of expertise. This is fatal. At random, I chose an article when I googled Why Are the Experts So Often Wrong? It is a Forbes article from 2014. Here is one relevant section. One of the things that makes experts so convincing is that they exude confidence. Parenthetical, I cannot help but think at this point of the discussions of Chris Rolston and Robert Cargill that we referred to in previous editions of The Christian Atheist. Listen to them again and see whether or not they do not indeed exude confidence. End parenthesis. Resuming the article. They can talk calmly and knowledgeably about a subject, make reference to relevant facts, and build a compelling logic for their case. 
A good expert is always impressive, but still usually wrong. In fact, in a 20-year study of political experts, Philip Tetlock found that their predictions were no better than flipping a coin. Further, he found that pundits who specialized in a particular field tended to perform worse than those whose knowledge was more general. This is so counterintuitive that it hardly seems possible. But it's true. The reason lies in the confidence of the predictions. Specialists, with their deep knowledge of a particular subject, tend to not incorporate information outside their domain, which makes for a cleaner, more definitive storyline. Non-experts, with their broad-based knowledge, are less sure of themselves. They also tend to be right more often. Confusion, more often than not, trumps certainty. Lewis, long before studies like this, came to the same conclusion. Like the confident assertions of the expert critics of the Mount Ebal tablet, Drs. Cargill and Rolston, the higher critical approach to the scriptures is based on an appeal to the authority of narrow disciplinary specialists who routinely over-rationalize their positions, taking their hyper-rationalized left-brain maps for reality itself. Lewis turns to an example. The fourth gospel is regarded by one school of higher critical thought as a, quote, spiritual romance, a poem, not a history, to be judged by the same canons as, quote, Paradise Lost, or, more exactly, Pilgrim's Progress. After a man has said that, Lewis continues, why need one attend to anything else he says about any book in the world? The insensitiveness is crass. How can we take someone seriously as a scholar or critic, Lewis asks, when they are so obviously disconnected from any real connection to the text itself? Quote, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know that not one of them is like John's Gospel. Either this is reportage, pretty close up to the facts, or else some unknown writer in the second century suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. End quote. Likewise, the famous theologian Rudolf Bultmann claims that we are given no personality of Jesus in the scriptures. Lewis says, so there is no personality of our Lord presented in the New Testament. Through what strange process has this learned German gone in order to make himself blind to what all men except him see? End quote. This notion of willful blindness is central to our case. And notice the words Lewis uses. Through what strange process has Boltman gone to make him incapable of seeing the most obvious facts presented in the text 
about which we are to consider him an expert, an authority in deference to whom we should subsume our own common sense judgment. The strange process is that of academic specialization, which cuts one off from a more holistic, dynamic, and contextualized right hemisphere understanding of the world. A process of hyper rationalization, of turning from reality to a rational map constructed by a self imposed left hemisphere blindness to what is the case, what we called the evident in an earlier series here on The Christian Atheist. In our next episode, we must examine at greater length this strange process of self-imposed academic blindness, and why I am, and why I think we should all be skeptical of the higher criticism. I am a Christian, with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening, and remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason. Respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.